Yeah, Father, it's, it's so good. Lord, we never tire of the story. We never tire of celebrating it or declaring it. Lord, it's too amazing just to be accepted like that. Lord, that you gave your son for such as us. You died for us even when we were still sinners. Lord, what a story. What a, what a truth to declare. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Yeah, and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're with us now. Holy Spirit, still be speaking to us, I pray, even as we get into your word, even as we pray later and worship later. Lord, Holy Spirit, be very present. Be welcome to say and do what, all that you want to do in this place. Amen. Amen. Are we doing all right? Are we still, uh, still awake? You've done well. I've got a nice breeze coming in from the front, so... Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It'll be on my back. It'll be right. be nice. I'll try and wake you up with a joke. Okay. Um, a vicar woke up one Sunday morning and realized he just couldn't be bothered with church that day. Um, so he arranged some cover for his service and he um, claiming he was a bit unwell and he went off to play golf. St. Peter and God were looking up from heaven saying, and St. Peter was not happy. He said, God, that's not right. We should punish him. So God said, okay, we'll do that. The vicar goes to the first tee. He smacks it, hits a tree, bounces off another tree, hits another tree, skims across a lake and goes straight into the hole. St. Peter turns to God and says, God, I thought we were going to punish him. And God says, yes, who's he going to (laughs) tell? Right. Since September last year, we have been going through the values of the church, the kind of church we want to be building. Last autumn, I looked at some of the the key values we're going through, and then this year, I've been looking at the other things that we want to be aiming for. And the reason why I want to take time going through these BFC values on Sunday is because we are bombarded with other values every day of the week and every year of our lives. Those values, it is done subtly, but that makes it all the more effective. So magazines subtly define, or perhaps not subtly, define what beauty is. TV defines how we should behave with one another. Video games define, they, well, they basically undermine the sanctity of life as you are scored on racking up kill after kill. The papers report on the kind of people that we're supposed to emulate. The schools teach worldly values and then they relegate truth to RE lessons, calling it faith for the uneducated and unreasoned. Books teach us how to raise our kids without God and without discipline. Adverts on billboards illustrate what success looks like and what it costs. And all the time, godly values are being pushed further and further away. And especially if we aren't getting into our Bible, reading it and meditating on it, effectively our only study comes from the stuff outside. And without thinking, our values, and therefore the values of our homes and our schools and our workplaces, even our churches, are shaped into a mold that we don't want. And so this is why I want to to agree together and to take proper time to agree together. I do hope that you're not desperate. I've only got a few left, but I hope you're not desperate to get into kind of the, the real theology, because this is theology. 
This is all about God. It's all about what God loves, what God desires, what God wants for his people. Today, today I want to talk about diversity. Now, I know some of you automatically, your first thought is of Britain's Got Talent and a dance troupe, street dance group called Diversity. I'm thinking for something bigger than that. You know, we're not going to go into that kind of synchronized street dance. That's not one of our values. I want to go a bit bigger and think about diversity before they were around. BFC is and will continually strive to be a diverse church. Some churches would call this cross-cultural mission, a church that reaches across the cultural divides and builds a new heavenly kingdom and a heavenly culture. But I actually felt, you know, actually diversity is a better value because it's more than just culture that divides us. We live in a very segregated world where there are barriers of gender, of age, of culture, of class, of background, of education. And my heart is that we would build a church where all those barriers are demolished, where the children and teenagers can worship with the adult, where those who left school at 16 can fellowship naturally with those with the postgraduate doctorates, where the CEOs can interact naturally and have fellowship with those who are unemployed, where white Brits can gather with all the other nations that represent, all the other ethnic groups that make up our nation, and they can do so naturally. And that is why I wanted to go for diversity rather than just cross-cultural. Our prayer is that we would be a diverse but a united church who placed the exact same value on every person we encounter. Now, some Christians disagree with me. They won't disagree with me in in word, but they will disagree in deed. So they want to create a British church here, but then down the road, well, there's there's a South African church where people who, you know, from that background can go and worship. Or there's a, you know, if you're middle class, then there's a particular Anglican congregation where you're going to feel most welcome and fit in better. Or they create these mini congregations within churches. So you turn up at the door with your family and the kids automatically go off to their own activities and never get to worship with their, with their, fam, with their parents. Now, clearly it is not my job, you'll be pleased to hear, to pass judgment. Every church needs to hear from God for themselves, for their own vision and their own strategies. They're accountable to God, not me. I I do know that. But I can certainly speak about what I want for this church and what I believe God wants for this church. BFC will continually strive to be a diverse community of believers, inclusive and welcoming to all. So why, why should we care about diversity? Is it to be politically correct? Political correctness in this current generation seems to be ranked above everything else even above wisdom and reason and common sense. It's, it's like a, it's a taboo to be against that, isn't it? But that's not the reason why I want us to care about diversity. I don't really care about looking PC, to be honest. Maybe I should. But that reason just doesn't inspire me enough. Instead, let me give you four reasons from Scripture why I think we should care about diversity. First reason, because God put it in creation. Genesis 1, verse 11 Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. Now, various is quite an understatement, really. Then God said, let the water teem with living creatures. It's not like, well, I'm going to give you a few to eat. You know, cod, haddock and prawns. That's all you got, guys. That's it. 
He filled it with life. He said, let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. Diversity was God's plan from the very beginning. He put diversity into the inanimate world, through the the, the stars, the planets and constellations and galaxies that we stare up in awe at in, in the night sky. He put diversity into living creatures. He even put diversity into his favorite creatures, making them male and female. And having, having seen all the diversity of creation, God's comment, if a little bit understated, he said, it is good. You know? And when he put diversity with equality into mankind, we managed to squeeze an adjective out of God where he says, it is very good. Do you realize that we are still getting to grips with what God did in that moment? The diversity of the world. Did you know that there are 15,000 new species of animal that are discovered every year? That means every day, today, 40 new species that hadn't been described or classified has been, has been found by scientists. And yet they still, estim- as experts estimate, we are still nowhere near discovering the length and the breadth of God's diversity in creation. They estimate that 86% of land animals and 91% of ocean creatures still have yet to be classified properly. 86% we don't know about. 91% under the sea. We don't know about it. They estimate that there are 7.8 million more species of animal that still needs to be named. If you thought Adam's role, it was only Adam that was there to name the creatures, you're wrong because every day we name another 40 every day since then. And yet all of those millions of species exist in interdependent with each other. It's an amazing picture of God's plan for us, his new creation. You've got this mind-boggling diversity, but unity with each other. So why else should we care about it? They're already up. <laughs> Secondly, why should we care about demolishing the social barriers and building a diverse church? Secondly, because Jesus demonstrated it when he was on earth. We just have to spend a moment in the Gospels to see and look at the people he reached out to. The ones who were his priority, even against all the social expectations of the day. Here are some examples of how he broke through those barriers. Firstly, he spoke with women. Okay? Jewish men just weren't supposed to do that in public. It, it, it debased them, it lowered them in status. In. But Jesus loved meeting with women. Not just the proper ones, not just the pretty socialites from Jerusalem, but the ones with a, with a past, let's say. He, loved ch- he chatted and he revealed that wonderful living water to a Samaritan woman at the well. A Samaritan woman who had been married before five times and was now living with someone she wasn't married to. Jesus freed and spoke kindness to the adulterer. He spoke love to the prostitutes. If Jesus lived in this time, I would be convinced that he would walk through the red light districts of our cities and speak kindness to those women. He spoke with women. He played with children. Again, again, it was a social taboo of the day. Men weren't, Jewish men weren't supposed to interact with children. That was a woman's job. And again, they are debasing them, they're lowering themselves if they even spoke with a child. Are we like Christ in that, I wonder? Or can we be... A little bit prejudiced against children. 
I've heard people say, you know, I don't really like being around kids. You ever heard someone say that? You know, you know it's fine for the, you guys, you're fine with that one, but, you know, not, not for me. And uh, I find that quite, it's a socially acceptable statement, isn't it? I mean, that's fine for you, it's different. But would they ever really admit, you know, I don't really like black people. You know, is that the same thing? Or, I don't really like old people, they're just really annoying. And just like, you know, we seem to be, we seem to allow prejudice against children. That seems to be socially acceptable when other things obviously aren't. And Jesus even fought against that prejudice with his own disciples. What else did Jesus do? He spent a lot of time in foreign places. Jews weren't supposed to do that. At the time, you've got, and in terms of a map of a geography, you've got Galilee, you've got Samaria, and you've got Jerusalem and Judea. And the Jews from Galilee would happily add a day to their journey to avoid going through Samaria. So they would go round Samaria rather than interact with these half-blood Jews. They hated the Samaritans so much. You know, when um, sat-navs were quite new, they, I mean, they're not very intelligent now, but they were even less intelligent in those days. And uh, we tried programming a, a holiday journey. And uh, we were in East Corinthians at times. So we'd go East Corinthians to Cornwall. And the route they recommended was that we drive to New Haven, get on a ferry, go drive through France to, I think, Saint-Malo, get a ferry up to Plymouth, and then across from Plymouth to our holiday destination. It was a genuine option for us. Now, I know there's a bit of rivalry between Cornwall and Devon, but it's quite an extreme way of avoiding driving through Devon to go via France. I tell you, if Jews could do that with Samaria, it would be brilliant. They would love it, and they would do it. They would happily add a journey, a day journey, to go to Jerusalem, to go to the festivals, to avoid going round somewhere like Devon for them. You know, Jesus loved, he gave some of his best preaching in foreign lands. He made foreigners the heroes in his story. You ever realize that? Again, just about the Pharisees must have hated it. And actually, when I was preparing this, I kind of wondered, actually, I think we can be a bit prejudiced in our heroes in our story. You know, when I think of heroes through, um, you know, people who have done great works in the church, I think of guys like Wilberforce and Muller and uh, Booth, which kind of implies that, you know, to do great things for God, you need to be a bloke, you need to be white, and preferably Victorian. You know, there are heroes. And if that's the only people we look up to, then we're not doing as Jesus did. Jesus also socialized with those people who had made less than honorable lifestyle choices. He had dinner with tax collectors. Tax collectors were probably seen in the same light as drug dealers today. Mike Pilevacci um, spoke at a conference about a few, few weeks ago, and he, he's become friends with Brother Andrew, who was very famous for smuggling Bibles into Eastern Bloc countries. And uh, Mike asked him, you know, what, what do you do now? And he says, well, I meet with drug barons and terrorists, and I just become their friend. Which is great, you know, so he goes to Colombia and he meets the drug barons, goes to Palestine and just becomes friends with terrorists. Did what Jesus would do. He resist, and he, Jesus resisted the belief that if you loved these people, that you're somehow condoning wrong decisions and wrong behavior. Or you're somehow saying that sins don't matter to God. When Jesus didn't say that. Well, if I'm friends with those people, then people might think I agree with their lifestyle choice. Not necessarily. Jesus didn't worry about that. He just spoke love and became friends with them. Jesus reached out to all the rejected people. He spoke to the lepers and to the poor. They, they weren't just physically isolated. They were spiritually rejected. They weren't allowed to bring offerings in the temple. They weren't allowed near the temple. 
They'd been denied access to God. Seemingly, they'd been rejected by God. That's what all the Jewish people thought. But it's interesting that when God turned up in person, he went first to them. He, kept, he wanted to break that centuries-old belief that God's blessing is best showed through wealth and health. And it's funny, because as you consider all the examples of how Jesus broke those social barriers, you, all the time you see his disciples speaking against him. You keep saying, well, okay, they keep trying to speak common sense into God. And, you know, Jesus is perfect, yet they still want to come and say, should you really have done that? Well, he's God. He, yes, he is. He's perfect. He should have done that. He did it. But they keep trying to get him to conform to the way things are. So when Jesus speaks to the women at the well, in John 4, 27, the disciples come back, return, and they said, it says they were surprised to hear him talking with a woman. And then John reports, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Which is an interesting thing to state in record, and, but not if everyone was thinking that, but was too afraid to tell him. Why are you talking with this woman? When the children came to Jesus to be blessed, the disciples were indignant. Get them away. Don't waste the master's time. I love the story of when, when James and they, they walk through a Samaritan village. And when James and John, um, the Samaritans aren't very welcoming in that village. And James and John say, Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven to consume this village? Look, you're very busy, but we can do it for you. Just, just give us a nod and we'll pray and God will send fire and consume these heathens. And um, it's interesting, they never said that about the Jewish villages that rejected him far more than this Samaritan village had. The disciples kept wanting him to reveal himself in Jerusalem because that's where the movers and shakers were, not in those backward villages of Galilee or Samaria or Judea. And all the time you find Jesus battling against the prejudice of his disciples. Jesus was constantly trying to get them to see people through God's eyes. So why else are we looking? Why else should we care about diversity? God placed in creation. Jesus demonstrated it. And thirdly, because the early church demonstrated it as well. Today is Pentecost Sunday. As I said, we celebrate the birth of that first church. We celebrate the moment where God revealed his ultimate plan to, for all the nations to come together and to glorify God. It was a great reversal moment from the Tower of Babel in Genesis. In the Tower of Babel, they all came together with one language to make a name for themselves and to challenge God. At Pentecost, they will come back together with a new spiritual language and they come to make a name for God and to glorify him. And as the, as the Spirit descended at uh, Pentecost, a new tribe was born from all the nations that had gathered for that Jewish festival. And how did it come about? It came about because people heard God being praised in their own language. They felt connected, they felt honoured, and then they felt ruined for anything else. You know, we talk about being a New Testament church, but it, it isn't about how we meet, you know, the kind of buildings we use. It's not really about the songs that we sing. It is a difference in values, the things that we hold highest. It's to hold to the values that they felt were most important, the centrality of Christ, passion for evangelism, missional nature of the church, the evidence of grace, the passion to serve the poor. And to be a New Testament church is to take those values and then apply them, as we're doing in this sermon series, to 21st century Britain. And one of their values seemed to be building a diverse church, like the one we see in Antioch. In Acts 13.1 it says, In the church Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. 
Get this for a leadership team. You've got Simeon the Niger. Niger, literally Latin for black. He would have been black African. Lucius from, um, of, from Cyrene. Cyrene is like modern-day Libya. He would have been North African. You've got a Menaean. Menaean who went to school with Herod. He was, he's the Etonian in the group. You know, his, his family were rich and influential. You've got a Cypriot Jew called Barnabas, and you've got Saul, who declared himself to be the Hebrew of Hebrews. And that was their leadership team. It was a church that looked beyond color, background, wealth, and history, and they just looked to see the grace of God at work, and they made their judgments on that alone. In these churches, you see women having significant role as leaders, teachers, and supporters. We hear about young people in their services. We hear in those greeting bits at the end of letters, you have names representing all different culture groups and languages. And though it took time, they began, as I mentioned a bit later, they began to see that age-old Jewish mentality, special race mentality being broken down by these first congregations. And if our desire is to imitate their best values, we should look to build the same kind of diversity into our church. So God placed it in creation. Jesus demonstrated it. Early church demonstrated it. Fourthly, my favorite reason for building a diverse church, it is a wonderful demonstration of our gospel. It is proof. It is evidence of the power of the gospel. You know, people aren't really after words and promises. They get enough of those from politicians. People want proof of the power of the gospel. We often say, don't we, that, you know, proof's on one side and faith is on the other end of a spectrum. You can either have proof or you can just have faith and believe in God. But I don't believe the Bible says that, and I don't believe our own testimony bears that out either. I believe in, believed in God because I saw proof of his existence in creation, and I saw proof of his love through the cross. I continue to believe in God because when I'm tempted to doubt, I remember the proof of his love on the cross. His love for me. And people will believe when they see his power at work. Through creation, through miracles, but I think more commonly through his people, the church. A diverse church is an amazing proof of the power of the gospel. It shows that it works. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is clearly not saying that we have all become some an horrible androgynous mix with no identities of our own. Everyone's the same. You know, the, the men are effeminate and the women are manly. It's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying all the previous divisions, all the old and sinful attitudes of superiority and inferiority have now been destroyed by Christ who died for all. We are all now one in Christ Jesus. We are united together, unity, but with diversity. We now belong to each other. As John Stotts writes, he writes, we belong to each other in such a way as to render of no account the things which normally distinguish us, namely race, rank, and sex. We now belong to each other in such a way as to render of no account the things which normally distinguish us, the things that perhaps were most important to us before. Look at what Paul writes. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Martin Luther King said there is no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard 
precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Now, on face value, the Old Testament looks like God had a favorite, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It looks like he favored Abraham's descendants above all the other nations. But really, God's plan was that Israel would be the forerunner and not the only nation blessed by God. They would be the light for the Gentiles. And even in God's law to the Hebrew people, great provision was made for foreigners who wanted to come and be part of their people. I probably mentioned before my favorite part of the Exodus story. I think it's in Exodus 12. And the Hebrew people have just moved out after the Passover night. And uh, and there's like a kind of an extra sentence at the end. And it said, and many Egyptians and other nations went with them. And I love the idea of that. It's not that God said, right, Hebrew slaves, right, you come out, Egyptians, I'm going to punish you and anyone else who's involved in you. It was the Hebrew people are being saved, and anyone who wants to come as well is welcome to come and join them. And many Egyptians, it said, chose to leave homes and families and jobs and security, their old religion, because they saw a living, almighty God at work. Paul tells us in Christ Jesus, there are no distinctions anymore. The power of the gospel has destroyed that barrier. But also that, that statement is, is also about, um, it's more than just about nationality. It's about being chosen. The Jews felt that they were the chosen race, morally and, and spiritually superior to all. But God now says, I will choose from all the nations of the world. In Psalm 2, God, the Father doesn't say to the Son, ask, of me, for the, ask me for the tribe of Judah and I'll give it to you. In Psalm 2, it says, ask me for the nations of the world, and I will give you them. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 28 says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He then says to his disciples, now take that authority and go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make followers of me from all the nations, because I asked for the Father, and he gave me all the nations of the world. Paul also writes, slave or three. You know, in Christ, there are no distinction by rank. You know, we think that since we've abolished legalized slavery that we live in a fair society. But the attitude of man's heart hasn't changed. And we live in a class system still. It's funny how lots of people imagine that um, Eastern philosophy is like the most enlightened around. But all you need to do is look at the results in some of the nations like India, where you've got this caste system, which is is terrible. You've got these untouchables and these Dalits, the Dalits who are the lowest of the low. And they are given and they are forced to do the worst jobs, like cleaning sewers by hand. They're treated subhumanly. There are tens of thousands of cases of injustice against these people. You know, other, other people groups, other castes can, can rape and kill at will because the police will just turn a blind eye because these people are subhuman. Even in this nation, there is slavery. Not just terrible cases like was highlighted in Bradford of the sex, sex trade, but also you've got families that are trapped in poverty. We place a value on people based on what they earn, and then we treat them accordingly. We see the rich as those who are hardworking and have made good choices in life, where we look at the poor and think they are lazy or they've made bad choices in their life. Our goal is to be more like the rich and less like the poor. Our goal is to live on that part of the village and not that part. You know, when Louise and I were first looking for houses just before we got married, um, there was one house that we saw the details for it, and it looked pretty nice. And, uh, but I wouldn't go and look at it. And uh, it seemed quite strange, and 
I thought about it and thought, actually, do you know what? It was just pride. It was in the wrong estate, the wrong street, and I just didn't want to live there. So I thought, well, if it's just pride, I can get over that. So we went and looked at this house, and uh, we just walked through the door, and we instantly loved it, and we moved in a few months later. And uh, it's just, ironically, actually, in that road, in a few weeks, we knew more people, neighbors, than I had known in 20 years of living in the same house down the road, or down the other side of the town, um, in my parents' house. And it was funny, actually, you do get strange moments in those kind of places. Like on Christmas Day, when we got locked out, because our door got jammed, um, after church, um, all our neighbours kind of gather around, and it's lovely to hear your neighbours say, which one of the kids on this road is the best at breaking into houses? And, um, and quickly we're in there before the turkey got burnt. So it was great. Paul writes, finally, there's no male or female. In Christ there is no distinction by sex. You know, the daily prayer of a Jewish man was, I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile and not a woman. Do you know, this is a redeeming back of that, mo- that very good moment of creation. It's the power of undoing, the, it's the power of the gospel, undoing the power of the curse that pitted the genders against each other. God's plan is that the genders would be complementary. Different skills, different abilities, being, um, giving up pride, giving up personal, um, personal rights and pride for the sake of the other. But what was supposed to be complementary became conflicting. God's plan is that that unity with diversity within within our own species would have the highest honour in creation in reflecting the Godhead itself. Both men and women made gloriously in the image of the Trinitarian God. Do you know as men and women we were created to mirror the the very glorious diversity within God himself. Three-piece persons with submission, with different roles but with perfect unity and equal in honour. You know, only the power of the cross can undo the power of the curse that brought division between the genders. And we, should, we need to let Billingshurst see the power of the gospel as we lay aside all racial, social, economic and physical differences. Let them see a diverse people. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, with evangelism, it's vital that we both speak out and demonstrate the gospel. It's very hard to talk about God's heart for the nations when they only see one. It's very hard to preach about God's love for us regardless of our background if we make it so uncomfortable for people who are divorced or single mums or whatever, if we make it so uncomfortable that they don't feel able to be amongst us. You know, I, I nearly removed this value. Um, like a few others, I wondered whether... You know, was it really necessary to speak about something, you know, seems so obvious to us as Christians? Well, of course we want to be diverse. Of, of course we want a church filled with all kinds of people from all walks of life, representing all parts of our community. And even, I must admit, in the last few weeks I did consider dropping it, you know, finishing the sermon series a, bit early, a week early and doing something a little bit different. Um, but in God I felt that wouldn't be right. Because ultimately, diversity isn't about quotas. Having a token woman on a leadership team. Having, well, we need a young guy, so we need to get him in. Well, we need to make sure that every age is mentioned on a Sunday morning so no one feels left out. It's not about quotas. Diversity is an attitude of the heart. You know, when the world aims for diversity, they, because they don't have the power to change human hearts, they have to have quotas to live by. So a police force must have a percentage of minorities that represents the population that they're serving. 
a company must employ based on demography rather than ability. But as a church, we're not after quotas. We're after a heart change. Diversity is an attitude. It's an attitude to see the same value in every person, regardless of outward appearances or human values. It's about looking at the world through God's perspective, not one that is portrayed and beamed into our living rooms every day. It's about building a new kind of community, radically different, radically better than even the most inclusive, politically correct society found on earth. Diversity, it's, it's a vision of a new community that values all people as God does. Or more accurately, actually, it values all people in the same way that Jesus did when he died for them on the cross. Revelation 5, 9 to 10 says, And with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That is diversity. Do you know what really is diversity? Doing what Jesus did. Dying for all, regardless of background. It's giving your life for the sake of everyone else. Jesus led the way and he expects us to follow. It's not just about speaking right. It's giving up your very self for them, regardless of their age, gender, background or race. That is what diversity is really about. So very quickly... What would this look like? For all these values, I've tried to get a bit more practical. This isn't all of the ideas. These are just a few things that came to mind. Firstly, we want to seek to be a family church, not just a church of families. So we want singles, widows, divorcees to feel as welcome as that family that comes along, brings five kids, you know, and meets our annual growth uh, target in one foul swoop. Fantastic. We can rest for the rest of the year. You know, we will make mistakes in this. Forgive us when we do. Forgive me when I do. You know, I am a bloke. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a son. Many of the ways that I want to, um, many of the examples that I will use even, are about how I want God to work on my heart and the changes I want him to make in my life. But I don't want it to get to such a point where actually it makes my preaching irrelevant because you're at a completely different age and stage and you can't relate to that. We'll make mistakes in that, but this is our goal. Secondly, we will seek to build a New Testament church and not a British one. Please, God. Let's be careful that we build a church in God's pattern, God's blueprint. The way we worship, the way we give, the way we serve, the way we do family, the way we fellowship, the way we teach and learn. There are big issues with being British. I love being British. I I'm, will no doubt get very patriotic next weekend. Um, but there are big issues that I struggle with because of my nationality. Firstly, we Brits are so reserved. Even the most you know, extreme, we're still reserved. We're reserved in our worship. It's amazing how we can stand here and say amazing, sing amazing truths like we're reading a shopping list. You know, it's like, God, you're so amazing. It's fantastic. You know, we're reserved in our fellowship. You know, there are some nations you would never hear them knock on the door and say, I don't, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to impose or anything. You know, let's build a community where we, you know, we go in, we put the kettle on in someone else's house. We're in and amongst each other like other communities do so much better than we do. We're quite reserved in our service as well. Oh, I, you know, I had to wait to be asked. 
I can't, you know, I can't go out there and help, you know. Clearly they're struggling, but, you know, if they want help, they'll come and ask me. No, we just go and serve. Reserved in our giving. I think we can be very, that's, that's our default position. Reserved in the way that we stand up and speak. You know, telling the gospel, standing up for, against injustices. Even though we do have a law that still protects us, you know, our personal rights, unlike other nations where you stand up for rights and you go straight to jail. We're very reserved, and we need to be careful that we're not building a reserved church. We're very individualistic as a nation. We're right at the end of the spectrum. We've been taught to think about individuals. We consider our neighborhoods to be a bunch of individual families with just a geographic connection. You hear in news it's about personal rights and responsibilities and not corporate and communities. We forget God is a community God, and he expects us, and he created us to be like him. But we need to show a better way. So we'll build a New Testament church, not a British one. Thirdly, finally, we will seek to fulfill the potential of every person here at BFC. We want every person to enjoy the blessing of being used by God. We believe that God has a significant role for every person, regardless of age, spiritual maturity, gender, background, education, ethnicity, or history. We believe there should be a diversity of gifting here at BFC. And that kind of statement then begs the question, how are you doing with your gifts? Would anyone know that you have gifts, or are they hidden and buried away? A couple of my, I've had a couple of my favorite emails recently are a couple of people in the church who said, fairly new, who said, you know, I'm able, you know I've got this gift and I've, I've been hiding it away. Is there any way I can, it can be used in the church? Yes. Love them. Love that kind of email arriving. Offering to be used in any way possible. Because we actually need to be careful that we're not working against this value by actually prejudicing against ourselves. We often think of diversity as you know, making sure we're not prejudiced against other people. But sometimes we're prejudiced against ourselves and we discount ourselves. We dismiss our part because of our background, because of who we are and where we've come from. And we need to fight that prejudice even against ourselves to step up and do what God's called us to do. Paul wrote in, Col- in Colossians 3.11, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is is all and is in all. My prayer is that we'll be able to say that same thing about BFC. Here there are no barriers because of race, culture, religion, religious background, gender, nationality, age or status. We are deeply committed to building a diverse church that includes many different cultures, languages and age groups. It's not so that we are nice or politically correct, but because it brings greater glory to God. Because who else could make us all one but Christ Jesus? Who else has the ability to be relevant to all nations except Christ Jesus? Who else has the ability to bring together all ages, all cultures, all pay grades, or educational status? Only Jesus Christ. God is more glorified by diversity than by uniformity. It reveals his lordship over all things. The total lordship of Christ is demonstrated by his being relevant to all nations. We don't just want to preach that as abstract truth. We don't just want quotas. Oh, there's a black couple moved into down the road. Wouldn't it be great to get them in the church, you know, add a bit of color? We don't just want quotas. We want to live by that attitude. Being cross-cultural does not mean, doesn't simply mean people of all backgrounds and races together in a church. It means we are determined to truly be in one. It's about welcoming all, loving all, accepting all, and reaching out to all, 
just as Christ Jesus did for you. You know, as I say, diversity, because it's, because it's not a quota, because it's an attitude of the heart, we, we need the Holy Spirit to do this. And wonderfully, you know, it's Pentecost Sunday, it's great to, rem- to remember again, it's the Holy Spirit that comes and changes our hearts. Not because I preached on it one Sunday. Actually, it's when God goes to work on a human heart that these things become possible. And in a, mo- a moment, I'd, I'd love the band to come up and we, we're going to pray and um, invite the Holy Spirit just to come. And let me, let me put it like this. Good believers often struggle with this diversity, if they're being honest. As you look through Scripture, even some of the best guys struggled with this diversity thing. A guy like Jonah. Jonah was a, you know, I know we see him as the guy who ran away and got eaten by a fish, that kind of thing. But actually, before that, he had a significant ministry as a prophet to the nation. 2 Kings 14 talks about it, I think. And, uh, but um, normally a very obedient guy, but he didn't like the fact that God sent him to Nineveh. And we hear the reason at the end. God, Jonah says to God, I knew that you would show mercy. That's why I ran away. What was Jonah's problem? He didn't want the Assyrian people to know God's mercy. Even at the end, it says he sat on a hill, looked out over the city, you know, to see what God would do. He wants a Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone moment. So he finds a good spot, gets some popcorn, and just sits down for the, the, the eternal show. Jonah didn't run away because he doubted God. He ran away because he fully trusted God and that meant a salvation of a foreign people. He didn't want to know God's mercy. Another character who struggled with it, Miriam. Moses' sister, generally, she did really well. As a young girl, she risked her life to save Moses. She was faithful as, uh, for 80 years while Moses was in the throne room and then in the wilderness with the sheep, leading the people. She even gets a bit of prophetic dancing going on the end, at age 90 in front of the people as they go through the Red Sea. But this is where she slipped up. Numbers 12.1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses, complaining that Moses was bringing along a foreign wife. Despite the fact, as I mentioned before, that you know, there were lots of other nations there. They, she didn't like Moses because of that. Peter, another example of a good guy who struggled with diversity. Probably seven or eight years after Pentecost, Peter gets that vision from heaven. The sheep comes down. God says, kill and eat. Basically, it says that what God has made clean, let no one call common. You know, basically, he's allowed to do that. The gospel can be preached to Gentiles. And, um, but then we read in Galatians 2.14, which is probably another 14 years later, Paul, Paul has to rebuke Peter because he's still pe- treating people differently because it says he was afraid of upsetting the circumcision party, which for me sounds like the very worst party to go along to. And, um, you know, why he would ever care about them anyway. 14 years after the vision, 25 years probably after the cross, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, Peter, the leader of the church, is still struggling with diversity. He still felt a moral superiority because he was raised a Jew. Good believers struggle with this more than we're willing to admit. And if you, So if you feel you can identify with that, then you're in good company. Why they struggle? Because they are battling against years of ingrained belief that their people were superior. Do you remember that case, I think, of Stephen Lawrence, where they, the, the report said there was institutional racism in the Metropolitan Police? Actually, we are all institutionally prejudiced 
to believe that our way is best. These are the values placed into us by the world, that our way is best, our culture is most developed, our choices, our lifestyle choices are right. And so it's a whole worldview shift to agree, no, God's way is best. Wonderful diversity with perfect unity, differences with equality, only in the church, but only as the members of that church commit to carry that value themselves. Can we all stand, please? If you're able, of course. Could the band come up? As I mentioned before, it's, it's not just because, you know, it's very easy. You know, I've had a bit more time thinking about this, but it's very easy to, to nod along and think, yeah, well, of course I agree. Of course I don't, I'm not prejudiced against people of different ages or backgrounds or races. And it's, but I think there is, a, there is that institutional prejudice that we do battle against. Just to see people who are different from, a, in, you know, and to feel a kind of a superiority in whether because of, you know, we're Western or whether because we're British or whether because we're white, whether because we're rich in other people, whether because we went to university or they didn't. Any, whatever it might be, whatever those divisions, very easy for us to, to feel a superiority. And God says that, you know, in Christ we are truly one. And I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit. Just to, He's with us now, but I'd love, it, I'd love a time of... Just us ministering, or the Holy Spirit ministering to us where we are. We don't need to get up or go anywhere. Um, we're going to sing, sing one of the songs from earlier on. And uh, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that with your blood you purchased men from every tribe and language and nation and people. You made them to be a kingdom, a united kingdom, and to be priests that will serve you forever. Lord, where you have broken down the barriers, forgive us where we have raised them up again. Forgive us where we treat people differently because they live on one part of the village or not the other. Where they seem to have made good lifestyle or wrong lifestyle choices where we feel that we've made the right ones. Lord, we can be so prejudiced against people. We can be prejudiced against ourselves because of who we are and where we've come from. Lord, wonderfully, in Christ we are all one. Wonderful diversity with perfect unity. Only in Christ Jesus and only through his Holy Spirit who is with us now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here. I pray you'll be ministering to hearts. Lord, where we have made mistakes in the past, forgive us. Let us remember, Lord, it is not about us. It is all about you, Lord Jesus. Lord, it is a, it's a changing attitude, not a set of quotas that we can live by. So, Lord, change our heart, I pray.
is and must be all about you. We said goodbye to that old life, that life of it is all about me. It's all about what I deserve, what I desire. And we chose to live a life all about you. And Lord, what a wonderful, what a wonderful picture we saw of you giving your life for all people. What a wonderful life you demonstrated as you reached out without prejudice and showed love to the very outcasts of that society. And Lord, it is still about you. It's still about a work that we need you to do on our hearts. It's very easy for us to think, yeah, you know, diversity is good, it's right. I'm just going to try a bit harder. But it's not about that. It's about allowing God's spirit to change us, to transform us with ever-increasing glory into your likeness, Lord Jesus. Just in the last moments, just give yourself to that transforming work. We can try harder, that's okay. But don't expect this kind of thing to happen without God's spirit to transform your heart. Keep working, Holy Spirit, I pray. Even as we close, even even as we go home, even as we go to our workplaces and schools tomorrow, Lord, keep changing our hearts. Do it gently, Lord, we're fragile, but do it, I pray. That we may not just talk about diversity, but we would be doers and livers. And that through that, you would create a church in us that is so glorious, so wonderfully diverse, yet as one body. So work of your spirit, Lord. Holy Spirit, go to work, I pray.